My name is Cody Joshua, and you are listening to the Steadfast Disciple Podcast. Hi there. Thank you for taking the time to join me for the seventh episode of the Steadfast Disciple Podcast. Now, today's episode is titled, Zacchaeus, An Encounter with Salvation. The physician Luke is the only gospel writer to include an account about Zacchaeus, the short tax collector from Jericho who climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to catch a glimpse of Jesus. So, in Luke chapter 19, we'll read verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, saying, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Ironically, the name Zacchaeus comes from the Hebrew root word meaning pure or righteous. But, obviously, as a chief tax collector, this man would have been seen as anything but pure or righteous. See, tax collectors, also known as publicans, were independent contractors that were commissioned by the Roman government in order to collect the various taxes, which included income taxes, land taxes, property taxes, taxes on commerce and trade, etc. Rome would auction up these tax franchises, which would then be bought by a wealthy native of the province. Anything the purchaser might have collected above the cost of the initial franchise would then be kept as personal profit. So, as you can imagine, this was a system ripe for injustice and corruption. So, the collection agent would charge an additional percentage on top of the taxes which were already owed, and this is what they would use to line their own pockets. This would be straight profit for them. In the cases with merchants, for example, the tax collector would arbitrarily assess the value of the goods which were being sold and then charge an inflated payment for that amount. They were also known for accepting bribes and hush money from the wealthier upper class because these individuals would be expected to pay more in taxes. And in order to make up these underhanded tax breaks, then they would charge the common people even more. And on top of it all, there was no recourse or method of appeal because these collectors were authorized by the Roman government. So basically, this was legalized extortion. Not hard to imagine, then, why these tax collectors were so often despised and socially rejected by their fellow countrymen. 
They were seen as being in collusion with Rome and were therefore viewed as traitors to their nation, an ever-present reminder of the foreign oppression. Because of their close working association with Gentiles, tax collectors were viewed as unclean and were regarded along with the lowest class of sinners. They were excommunicated from all Jewish synagogues and were not even permitted to testify in a Jewish legal court since they were so well known for being liars and cheats. Earlier in chapter 3, Luke records that even tax collectors were among those who were coming out to John in the wilderness to the Jordan in order to be baptized. In uh, verses 12 and 13, they ask him, Teacher, what shall we do? And John tells them, Collect no more than you are authorized to. And here in verse 2, we're told that Zacchaeus was not only a tax collector, but was a chief tax collector. So he was the head contractor of this franchise, the top of the pyramid, and therefore he would have had collection agents working underneath him. And it wouldn't at all be surprising if he were taking an additional percentage from each of their commissions as well. We also learn from the text it tells us that he was rich. We're told that this takes place in the city of Jericho, which was considered as the tax capital for Palestine. The city of Jericho was located in the Jordan Valley about 17 miles east from Jerusalem and was a very wealthy center of commerce and travel. Just as we see Jesus and his disciples passing through here, thousands of other Jewish travelers would have passed through this area, making their way up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Jericho, which literally means fragrant place, was also referred to as the City of Palms, known for its many date palm trees. See Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 3. It was a lush oasis with plenty of vegetation and therefore became a high agricultural area, and still is even to this day. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus writes of it as, quote, a divine region, the fattest in Palestine. Interestingly, Jericho is considered to be one of the oldest continually inhabited cities of the world, with archaeological discoveries dating back to 9000 B.C. Being located on the northern end of the Dead Sea, it is also the world's lowest geographical city at about 780 feet below sea level. Because of its warmer climate, Herod the Great actually had a huge winter palace built there for himself, which covered several acres and brought even more wealth to the area. So the city of Jericho was a choice location for a man of Zacchaeus' profession, and as we see from the text that he has indeed been financially successful up until this point. In verse 3 we read, He was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, for he was small in stature. Why does he want to get a look at Jesus? Why does he want to see who this man was? A mild curiosity, perhaps, to see who this rabbi was from Galilee that everyone was talking about? Or rather, and this is the direction I lean, perhaps there was something deeper at work below the surface some undefined drawing within him to this compelling source of goodness that was radiated from Christ. Maybe he has heard of the compassion that Jesus displayed even for men like him. After all, he had even accepted a former tax collector by the name of Matthew, or Levi, to become one of his very own disciples. 
Even if it were on some subconscious level, I believe there was this feeling of discontentedness, a knowledge that all was not right between himself and God Almighty. Despite all of his acquired riches, there is still something missing in Zacchaeus's life. There is an emptiness. It's not uncommon to hear of these testimonials from celebrities who, despite all of the wealth and the fame, still claim to have this pervasive feeling of discontentment, unhappiness, and unfulfillment. Unfortunately, so often we tend to fix our gaze on material possessions, not realizing that these temporal things, these fleeting things, can never truly satisfy. Jesus himself specifically warns against this in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He says, Take care and be on your guard against all forms of greed, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It reminds me of the superficial slogan, He who dies with the most toys wins. What a sad sentiment. No, the truth is, he who dies with the most toys still dies, and he cannot take any of those so-called toys along with him. As the saying goes, you will never see a U-Haul being pulled behind a hearse. Due to his being short in stature and because of the large crowd of people, Zacchaeus was unable to get a visual of Jesus. So in verse 4 we're told that he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree so that he could see him, for he knew that he was about to pass by that way. This type of sycamore fig actually makes for an easy tree to climb because of their thick, shorter trunks which are closer to the ground and for the way their limbs branch out in a crown-like fashion. Surely this would have been an amusing sight to see. Consider it for a moment, this well-known rich man, this prominent chief publican, arrayed in his fine apparel, no doubt, shimmying up into the leaves and the branches of this tree. While this certainly sounds like fun to us, understand that in the culture at the time, this would have been seen as undignified behavior for a grown man. I mean, think about it, who's known for climbing trees? Children, right? So Zacchaeus was unknowingly fulfilling Jesus' teaching about becoming childlike. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 1-4, through 4, we read, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to himself a child, he placed him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I like what Matthew Henry writes in his commentary here. He says, Children, when they are young, do not desire authority. They do not regard outward distinctions. They are free from malice, they are teachable and dependent upon their parents. Children, for the most part, are destitute of ambition, pride, and haughtiness. So, in this situation, while the onlookers would have undoubtedly been snickering and jesting, pointing and laughing, Zacchaeus, he didn't care, he wasn't concerned about any humiliation that this action might have warranted against him. In that moment, all he cared about was finding a way to get a better look at Jesus. You see, we, we display how valuable, how important something is to us by the tenacity in which we are willing to seek after it. This is why throughout Scripture you'll see this term, seek, so often. 
in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, this is where Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 40, verse 16 writes, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. And the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55, verse 6 writes, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Well, we see that this is exactly what Zacchaeus is doing here. He's seeking the Lord while he is near. In fact, this would be the very last time that Jesus would ever pass through this way. He's making his way into Jerusalem for what is now known as the triumphal entry. Within only about a week's time, he will be scourged and crucified. In verse 5, whenever Jesus had made his way over to the place, he looked up into the tree and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. This is actually quite humorous to think about. Here is a short little Zacchaeus perched up in the branches of this tree, and for all he's thinking is that he has now achieved a way to at least catch a glimpse of Jesus as he and this large crowd make their way past. The last thing that was on his mind is that Jesus would in some way turn his attention towards him. He wanted to see Jesus, not to be seen by him. Imagine, though, instead of this large procession simply passing on by, they all come to a halt right here beneath this tree. And wow, there he is. There's Jesus. And Jesus looks up and sees Zacchaeus amongst these branches. And he calls to him by name. And he tells him to hurry and come down because he's going to come home with him. This is the first and only time that we read that Jesus ever invites himself to someone's home. Another indication that this was far more than merely a superficial curiosity on the part of Zacchaeus. There was something else here at work in the soil of his heart which our Lord graciously fosters into life by his own self-invitation. Notice also how Jesus uses language that seems to speak of necessity. He says, For today I must stay at your house. Is this an accidental meeting, an accidental chance encounter? Jesus chooses to momentarily pause his steadfast path towards the cross in order to take time to have fellowship with this man in his own home. And how does Zacchaeus respond? In verse 6 it says, So he hurried and came down, and he received him joyfully. This is the perfect illustration of Jesus' words in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him, and he with me. Jesus takes the initiative. He approaches. He stands at the door and knocks. But he in turn must be received, welcomed into the home and into the heart. Zacchaeus, it says, received him joyfully or with gladness. See, there is delight in truly receiving the Lord. You can never twist a person's arm to bring about a profession of faith. No one can be argued into the kingdom of heaven. But when the Holy Spirit is at work in a person's heart and Christ extends his merciful salvation then that person does not come reluctantly, but joyfully, wholeheartedly, with gladness. Then notice the reaction of the people in verse 7. 
And when they saw it, they all grumbled, saying, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Even more surprised than Zacchaeus are the onlookers who question, How can he possibly have fellowship with this wretched sinner, this traitor? Doesn't he realize what kind of man this is? How he's acquired all his wealth? What he's done to us? This reminds me of a scene I always appreciated in the old movie Jesus of Nazareth, where Jesus is invited into Matthew, the tax collector's home. We see a similar situation in which the people are all grumbling, and someone asks him, You would enter the house of a sinner? And Jesus responds, I would enter any house where I am welcomed. And he goes on to say, For I have not come to call the virtuous to repentance, but the sinners. This same scenario can be found scripturally in Luke chapter 5, verses 29 through 32. It says, Then Levi hosted a great banquet for Jesus at his house. A large crowd of tax collectors was there, along with others who were eating with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In this same situation recorded in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus makes reference to the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6, when he says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Why did the Eternal Son take on fleshly humanity and dwell among us? To seek and to save that which was lost. Why did he offer to enter this publican's home, to be his guest and, at the sneers of the crowd, to associate himself with the polluted? For that very same reason. Alexander McLaren writes of this, His example is our pattern. A Christian church which does not imitate its master in its frank and continual willingness to associate itself with the degraded and the outcast has lost one of the truest signs of its being vitalized with the life of Christ. In verse 8, Zacchaeus stands up and says to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. In receiving Jesus with gladness and spending only a brief amount of time within his presence, Zacchaeus felt the holy conviction of his own sin and therefore naturally knew that now he must repent and make full restitution to the many persons he had undoubtedly wronged. That great preacher of old, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, writes, Jesus Christ did not teach Zacchaeus by going to his house that character was of no consequence. On the contrary, Zacchaeus perceived at once that character was of the greatest consequence. At first glance, it may almost appear as if Zacchaeus is casting some doubt as to his own cheating conduct, the way it's worded, if I have defrauded anyone. But this phrase in Greek does not imply doubt to the fact of guilt, but is better understood as wherever I have defrauded anyone, or insofar as I have defrauded anyone. The law required that the wrongdoer was to make full restitution for whatever was stolen, plus an additional 20% of the item's value. See Leviticus chapter 6 verse 5 and Numbers chapter 5 verses 6 and 7. So Zacchaeus is willing to go above and beyond that which the law required. 
This is a man who previously so desired money that he was willing to cheat and to lie and to take advantage of his own people. He was willing to be despised and alienated by society. He had a love of money. That was his sole purpose. His sole desire was to get rich, as the world would say now, to make that hustle. And that's exactly what he was. He was a hustler, a swindler. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, who or what are you serving? We see here that there is a drastic change in Zacchaeus' priorities. There's a shift in his focus. Now he says to Jesus, Lord, that is master, that denotes authority, ownership. He says, I no longer care about the money, the wealth. I'll give half of it away to help the poor, half of my possessions. And with the other half, I'll make four times the restitution to all those who I've swindled, those I've wronged. It's no longer the money that I want to serve, Lord. I want to serve you. See, one of the chief evidences of a true conversion is a reorientation when it comes to the material world. Lost individuals live as though the material world is all there is. Their focus is set on the treasures and the fleeting pleasures of this world while saved individuals understand of heavenly realities and therefore set their primary focus upon the spiritual rather than the natural. Whenever Zacchaeus stands and gives this public declaration of his own repentance, he's not seeking to be justified by his own works, but by his good works he will now show the sincerity of his conversion. This is not the grounds or the means by which he is saved, but this is the natural evidence of that reality, the outward expression of that salvation. Let me ask, does your life demonstrate change? Does it reflect the grace and the influence that Christ has upon you? Do you live in such a way that He has saved you? Are you being conformed into His image? Do you at all look like Him, sound like Him, or... Are you still that same tired old crook? We know that this is indeed a genuine conversion because in verse 9 Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to this house, for he too is a son of Abraham. I've always enjoyed this play on words that the Lord uses here because his very name Jesus or Yeshua in Hebrew literally means salvation. It's a combination of Yah, or the name of God, and Yesha, meaning to save, to rescue, to deliver. This is why the angel of the Lord instructed that this name be given to him. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel of the Lord speaking to Joseph says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So, in one sense, salvation had indeed come to this home that day. The actual embodiment of salvation, the Savior Himself, Jesus Christ. And, in another sense, salvation had come in that Zacchaeus had now received and entered into the source of that saving mercy and grace. This is a beautiful revelation of the Lord Jesus. 
that whenever we come to Christ in salvation, he not only delivers us from the penalties of sin, but he also delivers us from its bondage, the ongoing habitual nature and the power of that sin. He sets us free completely and thereby changes our focus, our priorities, and our very nature. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, why does Jesus say, Because he too is a son of Abraham? Because although Zacchaeus was indeed a physical descendant of Abraham by birth, it was only according to the flesh, according to the natural. As the Apostle Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 9, verses 7-8, through 8, he says, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as offspring. And again in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, he writes, Understand then that it is those of faith who are the children of Abraham. So it is here, as Zacchaeus professes his repentance and his belief on the Lord, that Jesus now says, Truly is he a son of Abraham according to faith. And lastly, those beautiful closing words of Christ in verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus says of himself that he came on a search and rescue mission. I believe this is purposefully reminiscent of earlier when Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep. This is previously in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in pasture and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it upon his shoulders rejoicing. And when he has come home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I will never forget this particular situation where someone had graciously invited me over to their home. They had invited me over for dinner, and I thankfully obliged them. And I remember another believer, another person of the faith, had questioned me about it, and they had like kind of a contentious spirit, and they had said, do you honestly believe you can call that fellowship? And I said, yes, I do, because for whatever reason, this person has invited me to their home. And I know who I am, and I know that I don't change. And just as Jesus would say, I would enter any home where I am welcome. I say, just as Jesus said, the Jesus of Nazareth movie, Jesus said that. But while it's not verbatim, quote for quote in scripture, that idea, that essence is prevalent throughout. Anyway, shortly after that encounter, this person who had invited me over for dinner, it was not long after that that they asked me to baptize them. So, we don't always know or see the fruit of our labor, but our job is to throw seed. It is God's job to bring forth the increase. 
sometimes we see it and sometimes we do not, but it's not about sight, right? We walk by faith, not by sight. So our job is to trust that just as it says in Isaiah, God says, my word will not return to me void, but it will accomplish the purpose I sent it. So I always just stand on that promise. I always take heart in that, that it's not my job to make something happen. You know, my job is to be who I am in him and to let him shine and lead through me. Thank you so much to everyone who has joined me and listened in to this podcast. Remember to stay tuned for future podcasts and also check out the website steadfastdisciple.com for more studies. Until next time, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.